Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. Welcome to Politics Done Right. From the studios of KPFT 90.1 FM Houston, your community radio station, we have a great program for you today. Former Harris County Officer Jeff Reese and former HPD Officer Shelby Stewart is with us to discuss how police bias has a material effect on people's lives in this county and throughout the country. We're also going to discuss the supply chain. We're going to discuss student loans and many other prescient issues. Folks, it's a full program. We have a whole lot of topics covered. So stick with us. We have a great program with a whole lot of things that I'm very sure you're going to be interested in. I'm very sure you're going to want to share and let people know what's really going on. You can get any one of my books as a gift for becoming a member of KPFT. Go to kpft.org, click that donate button, select Politics Done Right as the show you're supporting, and go into the gift area and select As I See It, Class Warfare, The Only Resort to Right-Wing Doom, or you can also get It's Worth It, How to Talk to Your Right-Wing Relatives, Friends, and Neighbors, or go to How to Make America Utopia, Take Away the Economy from Those Who Rigged It. If you get one book... It gives you one particular membership price. Two books, you get a discount. And three books, you get an even better discount. So please consider becoming a member of KPFT. And in the process, you get the gifts of the books. You can get Politics Done Right Mondays through Fridays on Facebook Live at facebook.com slash politicsdoneright. On YouTube Live at politicsdoneright.com slash YouTube. Please do not forget to follow me on Twitter for updates. My handle is at Egberto Willis at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. Before you get started, please remember to keep your community radio station in your minds, KPFT in your minds. Talk about it. Tell your friends about it. Tell them you know about this station in town, 90.1 FM Houston, that needs your support, that is there to provide what that nourishment that we need. 713-526-5738. KPFT.org. Visit us online. Contribute online. KPFT. 90.1 FM. You can visit us at kpft.org. So you know what we say now? Let's get busy. The supply chain was Biden's problem. After all, you know, he is the president. But of course, we know the supply chain, technically speaking, is a private sector thing and should be handled by the private sector. And since the market does everything better than everybody else, shouldn't it be working just fine well anyhow let's go ahead and listen to this and then we'll take it on the other side 
It was not that long ago that we saw headlines like this. The fear that supply chain issues combined with increased demand was going to make it tough, if not impossible, to get all those Christmas gifts under the tree. But it didn't actually happen. The White House says it's because the president tackled the problem early and helped ease bottlenecks and shipping delays. And as The New York Times puts it this morning, nearly all gifts arrived on time with minimal delays. Earlier this morning, I talked with Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg and asked him how they got it done. Secretary Pete, we thought weeks ago that Santa would not be here for Christmas. We wouldn't be getting our gifts. That didn't happen. Is that because of what you did to address the supply chain or because retailers got in front of it and we ordered our gifts early? Well, it's because workers, business leaders, and this administration stepped up and uh, worked hard to make sure that we had a good holiday season. Uh, look, this was uh, this was a tough situation. Off the charts demand combined with supply that was seeing a lot of issues impacted by the pandemic, but uh, really, really encouraged by the progress that was made. Uh, like you said, I mean, it was just a couple of months ago, we were seeing headlines that would have made you think uh, Christmas was basically canceled this year. And uh, now the, the shelves are stocked. In fact, uh, a lot of the, the large stores are reporting they have higher inventory levels than last year. The Retail Federation is predicting all-time best year ever for sales. Uh, and most importantly, families are uh, looking forward to gathering together when last year uh, so many, including mine, uh, had our, our, our family gatherings over a screen. Um, you know, so much has, has uh, changed. So much is yet to be done. Uh, but when it comes to the supply chain work to get goods where they need to be, our ports and the workers there, our, our trucks and the drivers who drive them have moved a record number of goods this holiday season. And that reflects everybody working together, everybody stepping up to the plate. Well, we spent- well you know, um, isn't the private sector supposed to be uh, working like magic because the market, this mythical market is magic. And whenever there is a, a supply issue, the things are done in a certain way that we don't have a problem. It seems like, God, government still has um, not a small role, but still has a major role specifically to correct the screw ups of the private sector corporate greed. But, you know, it's great to see that the mainstream media is actually covering this issue as it should now. Because as it turns out, they allowed for a long time for a private sector failure to look like a government failure. And as it turns out, government once again, like it did in 2008, once again, like it has done after every crash has come to bail out the mythical market. You know, when 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 you have Joe on board, Joe uh, <laughs> Joe Scarborough on board, you know it's somehow the the, the 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 fallacies are starting to fall out of many people's mindset. Check this out. We were talking yesterday, Meek. Uh, I, I said that uh, yesterday afternoon, and we noticed that Christmas presents that we were getting for our kids, of course, Christmas presents that Santa uh, is delivering and Santa, asked us to yes. hold uh, for our children. Just friends in the community, uh, we had heard two weeks ago, three weeks ago, not to expect to get those packages. Everything's working. New data showing the majority of America's, Americans will have their presents under the Christmas tree this weekend. 
According to shipping data company ShipMatrix, UPS and the Postal Service, meaning Santa, delivered close to 99% of packages on time between November 14th and December 11th. FedEx wasn't far behind, reportedly delivering 97% of packages on time during that same time frame. Santa, really. This comes after the White House formed a task force earlier this year to address bottlenecks at some of the country's major ports. President Biden spoke about the progress yesterday. Earlier this fall, we heard a lot of dire warnings about supply chain problems leading to a crisis around the holidays. The much predicted uh, crisis didn't occur. Packages are moving. Gifts are being delivered. Shelves are not empty. Jen Psaki took the briefing room podium yesterday and joked that the White House saved Christmas. Put it on a bumper sticker. (laughs) The Republicans (laughs) would put it on a bumper sticker. The White House that saved Christmas. Yeah, Yeah, Democrats are too often accused of uh, participating in the war on Christmas, and now this time they've saved it. Whoa, whoa, the Democrats have saved Christmas. I mean, yeah, they need to learn some of the marketing that the Republicans do. I mean, the the Republicans do it in a stupid fashion. In this case, it is true, right? The private sector failed at controlling the the, the supply chain. They allowed greed and just-in-time inventory and all these types of issues to create a shortage. And with that being able to further it, even in their screw-ups, they gouged Americans to even get more money. That's what they did. The corporate structure, that's what it did. Then, Then they needed government. Government came into the rescue and solved the problem for them once again. And, you know, if you doubt, if, if you doubt it, you know, they showed a, a little graph there that says a lot, but nobody probably thought about it this way. They show USPS, meaning the United States Postal Service, and UPS, the two major shipping companies. Oh, wow. They all delivered 99% of the products on time. In other words, government was just as efficient as private sector. But we add another private sector company. FedEx was at 97%, less effective, less efficient than the USPS, less efficient than the, uh, than the, gov- the both the government and the, the private sector. So what does that tell you? It actually tells you something. We're not anti-private sector. We are anti-corporate greed. There are certain things that uh, that belong in the private sector. There are certain things that belong in the government. And there are certain things that, well, it doesn't really matter. And I tell you what, things like healthcare belong in the government. It belongs in not in the private sector because the private sector is something that needs to make money by definition, needs to keep you sick. I mean, we could go over and over with all these things, but suffice it to say, I guess the administration saved Christmas? Wow. I don't think Fox News is going to print it that way. They're not going to play it that way. Biden saved Christmas. Wow. When you hear me talk about our system is not designed to help people, our system is not designed to make the personal economies of people better, to improve their, their form of living. Many of you think, oh, you crazy person. You just don't believe in capitalism. I believe in, a, in free enterprise, a strong private sector, a strong public sector, a strong social safety net to ensure that no one entity can take advantage of the other, to ensure that people can live the lives that they want with the happiness that they have. I mean, you take a look at the happiest countries in the world. It, 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 they have the type of economic system that is close to what I'm looking for. I want you to listen to this to show you how within our system is designed 
to keep you down. It's designed to not care about you and why we have to elect the type of progressives that will go into the system and make changes. Check this out and then we'll take it on the other side. Douglas, the Federal Reserve is taking inflation seriously, that's clear, with signals that they are planning uh, as many as three rate hikes in 2022, acknowledging inflation is not going to go away in the near term. Uh, So what is your economic take on all of this? Well, the economy is growing quite strongly. Uh, We saw the third quarter data revised up uh, this morning, and all indicators on the ground are that we're growing at something like 7% in the fourth quarter. We're going to carry that momentum into next year, 6%, say, in the first quarter, and 4 or 5% for the year. So uh, there's no real problem with um, uh, growth in in the U.S., and certainly from that perspective, um, there's no real danger of not doing Build Back Better. I mean, that's not something that's really on the merits needed right now. It's a political issue for the president for sure, but that's not something that has to happen. The bigger issue is the supply chains and uh, uh, the inflation. And the reality is that today's theater notwithstanding, you can't manage supply chains from the Oval Office. And the best thing that can be done is to recognize that one person's supply chain problems, another person's labor shortage, and do the things we heard the panel before us talk about in terms of a broader effort, not focused just on vaccines, to, to combat the, the coronavirus. That'll solve the supply chain problems. And it'll be up to the Federal Reserve to deal with the inflation, which will continue into next year. It's it's durable uh, through 2022 for sure. And it will be to a combination of getting the liquidity out of the system and raising rates to, to knock down some of the probably two and a half trillion dollars worth of fiscal stimulus that, that households are carrying into the next year. So uh, growth is not the problem. Inflation is and the supply chain is really about the public health policy. I want to pick up, Doug, on what you said about no real need for BBB uh, as the president tries to revive it and Schumer is going to try to revive it now. Uh, we heard the argument yesterday from the president that the Build Back Better plan would help reduce inflation. Here's a little bit of what he had to say about that yesterday. All the things in that bill are going to reduce prices and costs for middle class and working class people. It's going to reduce their costs. Well, bring down all those costs across the board from child care to a child care tax credit. There are a number of economists and economic writers who agree with that. Uh, there was a Wharton study, I believe, yesterday. Uh, what do you make of that argument? I don't think that's quite right. I mean, certainly the first year of Build Back Better as it came out of the House is is stimulus in an economy that doesn't need it and will raise prices across the board. It is true that there's an enormous amount of taxpayer money that will be handed out in the form of child care subsidies and uh, health uh, premium subsidies that will offset those price increases. But the underlying inflation will get worse. This is just a matter of using the taxpayer dollars to cover up the problem. Using the taxpayer dollars to cover up the problem. Just that statement alone. What's wrong with that? Using taxpayer dollars to cover up the thievery from those who have price and power and decided that even though we don't have shortages to increase the prices on Americans, so what do we do to mitigate that? We tax that excess profit that they get, give it back to the American people to mitigate that increase in prices. As they increase in prices, we increase their taxes, we give it back to the American people so that they don't feel the price increases that are out there. Look, it's it's a the, the, the thing that, I mean, what I just said was simplistic and it isn't just that way that it works. There, there's some more complexities to it, but in the, in the aggregate, that's how it works, right? But here's the deal. Think of what he just said. 
The economy is firing at all on all cylinders. 4% growth on average next year. This quarter, 7% growth. Crazy growth, okay? So you ask yourself the question, okay, with that kind of growth, you get inflation. But where's that inflation coming from if the American wages have not gone up by 7% or it's not going up by the average of 4% per year in the aggregate? That means that the economy growing at 7%, but the average American citizen isn't seeing it. That, ex- that expanded growth goes to the top only. And that is what we have to learn. And when it talk- he talks about the only thing we need to worry about is inflation. So what the Fed's going to take care of that. So they'll raise rates so that when they raise their rates, it'll mitigate inflation. True. But who bears the cost? The- they don't like inflation because borrowed money paid with inflated dollars means that you pay back a bit less than you borrowed. Right? But of course, there's interest to mitigate that. But when they keep interest rates high and they keep that very calm economy, the, the same scenario continues and everybody at the top makes a killing. Americans, I, I, I beg of thee, we have to understand the economy and not believe the crap these people with suits and ties go and say, we don't need bid back better. In other words, to hell with giving child care. To hell with giving uh, benefits, uh, health care benefits. To hell with giving family leave. That doesn't matter because there's some inflation that we want to knock out. That doesn't matter. Where's the humanity? It does matter. We have a society to make things better for people. We don't have a society just to make things great for those who have capital. And we believe the things that they say as if, when they're talking these issues, that somehow we have to keep them at maximal gain so that we will do fine. And if we don't, if we don't, if we, the middle class and the poor, don't continue to feel the pain, that somehow it'll get worse. No, it gets horrendous because everything goes to the top. Whenever you hear these people talking on TV, they're not speaking for you. They're not speaking for the average American citizen. They are speaking to keep a particular class funded, a particular class with the clout, a particular class making, and you being there to support them. It's the heights of being parasites. And, you know, we don't see it that way. We don't see that they are parasites. We think they've got money. They must be doing something right. All the money that they have is money raised on your back with your intellect, with your worth, and with all that you have provided. They've just controlling, they're just controlling the capital. Let's learn it, people. Let's understand our worth. Let's let's go with the student loan, then comes my soliloquy that you're gonna listen to. And we have breaking news from the White House. The president has just announced he's extending the pause on federal student loan repayments. NBC's Monica Alba is back with me from the White House. Monica, we didn't let you get away very far. A lot of news coming today. Uh, Talk to me about the student loans and just extending this. It was supposed to expire January 31st. 
This is a really significant development, Andrea. When the president first came into office, he directed the payments be put on pause through August. Then later in the summer, they determined they were going to extend that again as Delta was surging to the end of January, as you point out. And now the president is saying an additional 90 days will go into effect for this pause. So this punts it all the way to May 1st, 2022. And of course, this is something that the administration had been under pressure to make a decision about, given what we're seeing with the economy. And this affects more than 41 million Americans who really felt they wanted this breathing room to continue to figure out what the president and this administration may do overall when it comes to student loans. And it is something that the Department of Education is reviewing with borrowers to see if they're going to make some changes. Of course, there have been many advocates, many Democratic lawmakers even, who've asked the president to consider forgiving up to a certain amount of these loans, potentially $10,000, maybe more. Some have called, of course, for the entirety of it. So this just gives the president, the White House and the Department of Education more time to figure that out while people, again, take more time, given, of course, all of the pressure and the unknowns of what the Omicron variant will mean for our uneven economic recovery, Andrea. We So as it turns out, we got another 90-day reprieve for all our young people with debt, well, actually with everybody who has student debts. Let me talk about student loan. This is important. I have a, an open discussion with a darn good friend of mine, professor, um, a professor here at the, the university, a very good friend of mine. And it's amazing that when I'm thinking, sometimes I can't even remember names, right? Um, Jay, Professor Jay, all right? Jay Tice, he told me that I needed to be careful the way I pushed student loan forgiveness. And he, and he made a great case. And the great case he made had to do with all those folks in Appalachia that never took advantage of student loans. They just went ahead and didn't go to college. And he spoke about all these people in these different parts of the countries who pretty much would not get the benefit of getting that break, that student loan break, and that the Republicans could use that as a hammer to say, look at these elitists on the coast giving themselves all these tax breaks for these kids who went to school. And, you know, after he told me that I had to think about it and think about it and think about it. And he's partially right. But you cannot go with partially right when something is absolutely right. We allowed all these governments, state governments, to give breaks to corporations. We allowed all these state governments to cut their support for public state schools. And then it meant those who wanted a higher education had to spend more for that education. You can say, well, yeah, they're the ones who are gonna benefit from the higher salaries from that education. True. So I want them to share a responsibility of that education. But you know who benefits the most from an educated populace? The plutocracy, the owners of Exxon, the owners of all these other things. Okay? They are the ones who benefit from educated, an educated population. So they owe, them, they owe it to America to pay for those schools. Because remember... 
when, when they offloaded all of that into loans, they get you twice. Corporations lend you the money. After corporations lend you the money, they profit from the interest rates that you pay to pay back that money. And then the corporations make money on your excess labor, meaning you go ahead and you work for Corporation X, you design a parachute or you design an airfoil, you design a wing, and they make X amount of dollars on your design. They pay you a bit and they profit the rest. So everybody is making a profit on you. I'm not saying you shouldn't partake in your education, but it should be it should be shared. And that's what student loan forgiveness is all about. Student loan forgiveness is saying for those people, and, and by the way, if somebody in Appalachia wants to step out and go to college like many do, do it. If somebody in the in the ghetto, the barrios, and everywhere else want to do it, do it. But it is important for us to understand how our economic system works so that when, when we come and talk about we want to have loan forgiveness, it doesn't look like... When I, wrote, when I wrote the first part of this story and I put it on YouTube, as a video on YouTube, somebody said, Egberto, you freeloader, pay your damn bills yourself. I don't want to pay your bills. To which I replied to him is, I am not in this fight for me. My student loan was paid off 10 years after I got out of college. Every penny of it was paid off by me. Okay? So I'm not a freeloader. Most of this stuff that I'm doing is not, oh, I'm doing it for Egberto. It's not the case. But I'm saying it's not fair. First of all, it costs me a lot less to go to school than it costs my daughter, than it costs everybody else that's going to school now because our system wasn't as ripping people off as it is now. As it is now. Eric says, politics is unright. Egberto Willis is called a job. You, a person, used to pay your debt back. If you borrowed it, paying off your debt teaches you something about life. No, it doesn't teach you anything. If it taught you anything, uh, why, would the, why, would, why would the corporations take such good care of creating bankruptcy laws? Bankruptcy laws prevent corporations from paying debt. And I, as a small company, had to, had to give up over $5,000 from a company who went bankrupt and didn't pay me. I want you guys to understand that. And corporations, they don't have a problem. There are corporations, they go bankrupt, they don't pay their bills, and they come back into existence without a problem. Check this one out. And then lo tomaremos en el otro lado. Aquí tienes amigos míos. How is it that we got to this point where the numbers are what they are? Um, you know, this the, the, this thing we've talked about it a million times. That how the back, how the, the pandemic became a culture war, but the numbers the, the, you have a poll number here: party identification among unvaccinated Americans. This is from the Kaiser Family Foundation in October. Republicans, sixty percent. Democrats, 17 percent. Independents, 17 percent. I, I just you know, it's now almost two years. Just tell me the story. Why is your party? so resistant to following the science. Okay, well, thanks, John. I'm actually not a member of either of our nation's two parties. Um, I am registered as an independent wow, uh, and have been for most of my life. Um, but I will say that uh, it was clear from last spring um, or into the winter and spring of 2021 that this was a bipartisan problem. Then it's 
true that the the actual rate have gone of vaccination have gone up among Democrats and they've gone down. I mean, they have stayed stubbornly the same among Republicans, improving a little on the margins. But it is a serious problem because of misinformation. It's hard to say that this is going to get any better. The administration came to, to power and worked very effectively on the distribution of vaccines and did very quietly attempt um, with a lot of time and energy and resources to get to the community of the unvaccinated through pastors and local press and community leaders. And they try to do it quietly, not from the White House Rose Garden or the, the press briefing room, but to have people in their own communities try to reach the unvaccinated. And it was it was, again, successful on the margins, but not in a material way. And so we're looking at a community of people that have lost people in their community. They've lost relatives. They've lost radio talk show hosts. They've lost yeah. ministers. They know this virus kills them and they refuse to get vaccinated. Uh, at this point, it's very hard to say that trying to educate uh, the public on vaccines and the benefit of them is going to help us um, with regards to Omicron. And it's terrible what this does. Um, people who choose to let themselves get sick or their family and communities get sick and to die of this virus impact everyone, of course. And that's therein lies the problem. How do you spare the cancer patient, the stroke patient, someone get, giving birth to a baby um, with these overrun hospitals, with people who are willing to get this virus? We, and that's a real question, right? With a whole bunch of irresponsible people running around, them holding the resources of the hospital that could hurt people who are getting a heart attack, a stroke, or whatever because of the lack of beds, the lack of support. How do you handle that? I think, I, I, I have to be frank here, this part I think needs to be fairly macabre. I think you have to, when somebody comes in, are you vaccinated or not? And I think you have to have cues, it, it, cues for the vaccinated and cues for the unvaccinated. It's going to run into some moral problems because people are going to say, what about the guy who drove drunk and got into an accident? Should he go into a different queue? There are going to be a lot of issues like that. Uh, but I would say for this is a special situation, in my humble opinion, that that needs mitigation. I think this uh, this is an important one. I'm not sure what got into Andrea Mitchell today, but check out how she describes this and we'll take it on the other side. Well, I, th I do think that taking credit for any re reduction in gas prices uh, uh, based on what he did with the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is uh, a little bit, let's say, fictitious. Uh, it was more to do, I think, with Saudi Arabia and OPEC leaders deciding to pump more gas and a couple of other factors. Guess what? They're not mutually exclusive. It is true that Saudi Arabia increasing the amount of gas they put out drops the, the price of oil, right? Of course it does. But to just dismiss that the president went around the world, he didn't go ahead and say, I am opening the strategic reserve in America alone and in that way to reduce the price of gas because we know the price of oil, because we know the price of oil is fungible. It is something traded on the international market. So whatever the price is reflected in the United States actually has a measure over the entire world, right? But what the president did by coordinating, ensuring that it's not only the American Federal uh, Strategic Reserve is open, but throughout the world, several other strategic reserves are open. It means it gave leeway. It, put, it reduced price pressures for a while. And Saudi Arabia doesn't want 
to lose any pricing power or price pressures. So what they're going to do is they're going to say, you know what, we better go ahead and ship more oil because they may start going to ulterior, uh, to other issues, to other measures to further depress the price of oil, which may be more long lasting. The fact that the president was able to act on the strategic reserve, not only in the United States, but throughout the world was a psychological push for Saudi Arabia to move those prices. And that you cannot, that she, I don't think there was enough critical thinking in that thought is a process. But here's the worst part about that type of statement. A, a, a respected journalist neuters the president and further affects the poll numbers on something not based on fact, reality, or any anything of that nature. Today, we're going to stay a bit local, but do remember that this isn't local in respect to how it's covered. This is something that occurs county after county, city after city, uh, uh, municipality after municipality. Uh, today, I'm honored to have Shelby Stewart. Shelby Stewart is a former HPD officer, sergeant to be exact, as well as Jeff Reese, who is a former uh, HPD officer as well, leader. Harris County. Oh, well, I'm sorry. Harris County. You know, I, I kind of mix these things up. You guys, as far as I'm concerned, you guys are all cops, man. But anyhow, <laughs> anyhow, let's get busy. Anyhow, look, um, the, the criminal justice system is an issue for many people, and it has a whole lot of different ramifications. And Shelby spoke about something that really got to me that I said, we need to put it out there so that people will make sure that they force their own uh, cops, their own justice system to work in their communities. Shelby, tell us a little bit about you and then tell us a little bit about the issue that we were really concerned about when it came to somebody who got killed. I spent 28 years on the Houston Police Department. But during that time, I saw so much racism in the department that I, I began to be a civil rights activist. And that's how I got involved in civil rights by having to deal with the racism within the Houston Police Department on all levels. And so since I retired in 2009, uh, I've, I've been involved in civil rights actions in Houston and outside of Houston, and specifically dealing with police reform, changing policies, getting the community involved, in changing the police departments that serve them. Let me stop you a second, Shelby, because I have a question that I want to get sort of in my mind. How many years did you serve? 28 years. And within that 28 years, uh, were you able to make any changes internally or is the structure of the police department is that if you bug the system while you're on the inside, it presents a problem for your future? There, well, you... You're going to have to buck the system because the system is racist at its heart and the way it's structured. And if you don't push the system, then the system won't change. Now, can you push the system from the inside? If you if you if you take the chance to push it from the inside, 
you have to be skillful. You have to understand your job. You have to understand how to protect yourself. And you have to have a lot of courage. Now, you've been in, uh, you said you did 28 years. Uh, that probably means that you've been to several uh, convention conferences where you've been able to uh, mix yourself up with other police officers and other department. Is this pretty much uh, standards modus operandi for uh, police departments all over the country? Uh, believe it or not, most police departments around the nation have the central tenant that they will hide misconduct by officers and illegal activities. And you may ask why they, why they do that. First of all, the purpose of the Internal Affairs Division is to mitigate damages against the city. So if you don't see misconduct on videotapes and you don't see proof of illegalities, then the department is not going to deal with them as to what they were. They're going to slap somebody on the wrist and they'll keep their job. But if you see a video of the misconduct, it forces them to take the proper action. That's why videotapes are so important. Now that gives us a perfect segue into the particular incident we we are really here to talk about with respect to what you saw in a particular community. Let's talk about that. In 2018 in South Union, which is in the southeast part of Houston, a young man was killed at Zolly Scales Park. He was shot by another man. And so the Houston Police Homicide Division went out there and they did an investigation. Come to find out through the mother of the young man that was killed that a female that was involved in the shooting, the police, the police officer that was investigating it did not put a hold on her. And what a hold means is that he has enough evidence to, to find out if this person is, is really strongly involved in this case. And it gives him a 24-hour time in order to ask more questions and garner more evidence. Well, that wasn't done. And so the mother of the young man that was killed messaged the officer and said, well, young lady fired the gun at the other guy. It wasn't my son. Well, did y'all check for gunshot residue on her hands? And the investigator sent back a message saying, well, that wouldn't have made any difference. It just would have meant that she was defending herself. The problem is, is that at that time, he didn't even know she had shot a gun. He didn't know what she had done. And so it would have been more prudent to get her to the homicide division to, to investigate and, and uh, interview her some more to find out exactly what happened. That wasn't done. I think later on you found out that if they had done a real investigation, that uh, there were, well, you tell the story. There are a lot of cameras all over the place that could have been uh, right. queried. So, so after the mother wasn't getting satisfaction from the police department, she hired me. I'm a 
I'm a private investigator also. And so I went into the neighborhoods, got on the streets, talked to people, looked around. First thing I did was because the investigator told us, she asked him, she said, do y'all have any video of what, of what happened that day? She said, the investigator told her, there, wasn't any, there weren't any video cameras. So the first thing I did was I went out there and I checked the area for video cameras. Well, right in the area where the basketball court was, you had a huge business there that had video cameras that covered the whole area. So I went to the business, I spoke to the owner, and I got in touch with the guy that was over the camera system. I saw the camera system and I asked him about it. Well, that was eight or nine months before, which meant that because the homicide investigator didn't go check with them the next day, the video was lost just by missing the simple step that should be taken in every, in every police call, in every crime. Because the strongest evidence that you're going to have most of the time is video evidence. It's not going to change uh, because somebody's memory, memory gets bad. It's not going to change over time unless it's altered. So every time an officer goes to a call, no matter what it is, he should look around, see if there are cameras, talk to the owner of the place that has the camera, and see if they can acquire the video footage. This was not done. And because it was not, because it was not done, you have a mother who lost a son who, who hasn't gotten justice because the police department didn't take the necessary steps that they should have in the black community. And I would say this, that had this been in River Oaks or even a middle white class neighborhood, these mistakes would not have been made. I do not believe. So are they then mistakes? Well, I think they are mistakes. And, and the reason I think they are mistakes is because it's something obvious that you should do and you don't do it. And someone comes behind you and the information is let out that, that you didn't take the simple step to see if there was video footage, then it makes you look incompetent as a police officer or an investigator. Nobody wants that pinned on pinned on them. So I don't I don't I don't think it was intentional, but it was it was a it's a problem. Let me bring Jeff into the conversation here because today we got a verdict, Jeff, for um Kim Potter who uh who shot uh Dante Wright. And um, it's kind of interesting because uh, one of the things that I said on my program earlier today is that, um, you know, th there is a there is a sometime conscious, but there's also an unconscious bias that some have when it comes to dealing with people of color 
you know, uh, I honestly think Kim Potter made a mistake with her. I honestly think she made a mistake, but I think she only made, she would only have made that mistake with a person of color. In, in your experiences uh, as, as a cop, have you seen this sort of stuff happen more so on one side than the other? Yes, definitely. And I know Shelby has too. Um, you know, there's a lot of factors that, that go into play. Again, why was he stopped? Because he had an air freshener hanging from his back uh, mirror, you know, or he failed to signal. Uh, let me ask you, you know, you have to ask yourself, what would change in the world if somebody drove around with an air freshener in his car? Or what would happen if somebody turned without a signal? People do this all the time. They don't get pulled over. The problem was all this was done to prevent him from driving off, right? That's what they alleged. And then she supposedly admitted in the first place she would never have pulled this guy over. If that's the case, why the hell are you tasering the guy? If this is a situation you wouldn't have done yourself, you know, and this is a problem. A lot of people get into a situation they're not qualified to handle. And anybody that claims they mistook their, their taser, their handgun for the taser, that's a, that's a big problem. Right. No, but let, let, I want to I want to go a little bit deeper, Jeff, uh, and then we will we'll take take the other county issue. Um, my contention is that there's a certain kind of a bias, and how do we train against that bias? In other words, that that person uh, with it without consciously noting when it came to Dante, it was okay to. Alternative, you know, in other, in other words, she said, if I wasn't with the trainee, I likely would not have stopped the guy. Right. The next question is, if it were a white guy in that car driving and you are with the trainee who wanted to stop, would you have still stopped the guy? You get the point. Right. right. So, so the bias, my, my question to you is, how do you have, or rather, the question is, how do you confront that bias. I mean, what what uh, Shelby just pointed out is here it is: a black kid gets murdered, and the bias was against really doing the necessary work to find out who's guilty. Now we have the case of Dante, somebody who just had a minor violation, if any at all, right. and the police went half cocked all out to solve that particular issue. How do you get rid of that bias? Well, it starts with training. It starts with the very foundation in law enforcement. And I, again, I know Shelby had a, a very similar experience, but different because I'm a Caucasian. It's a lot different for me. When they trained me, I don't know if you, we had three different districts. And they told me, well, this is a district that's very wealthy and the sheriff lives over here. So you got to mind your P's and Q's. Now, this other district is kind of middle income and you can pretty much do what you wanted, but you had to be careful. But then there was a poor district. And a poor district was open season. This is, you know, a time of Rodney King. You can do anything you wanted to somebody because they didn't have the resources to fight you back. You know, uh, in other words, this, this, this thin blue line protected you from any kind of malfeasance that you did, whether it's racist, which, of course, it is, or anything else. And even today, it's that same perception that the police, whatever the police do is right. Whatever you have is wrong. If, you, if you're if you involved with the police, it's your fault. You did something wrong to instigate this, okay? And then when it's a person of color, that's where the problems start. Just what you're bringing up. How is this person going to be handled? You're going to handle everybody the same? 
are you going to handle different people differently? And, and that's the question. It begins in training. It begins in the whole aspect of law enforcement, the driving force behind it, the rationale that we're this one big blue family and whatever we do, we're okay. All right. And a lot of times it was made of predominantly Caucasian people. And even some of the minorities treat the other minorities worse than, than that. And, and part of that's in the systemic aspect of police work. Shelby. I mean, that's that's an interesting topic. And I want to throw that right back at um, at Shelby, because I've actually seen that in action. Uh, Shelby, what what um, what Jeff just said is, is sort of an interesting dynamic, right? I think that if you see something like that, it has to do with buying into racism yes. within the department as it deals with minorities. Um, I think that I think that the, the majority of the racism, though, it cut. I don't believe. Okay. No, training, you know, this, let me just say something, Shelby. This is politics done right. On politics done right, you don't bite your tongue. You okay. say it. I don't think that, I don't, I don't know that training necessarily by itself helps because you're asking people that come from different walks of life that may not have any experience with someone of another race other than the values that have been inculcated into them through their parents, their cousins, their friends, and people that they trust. And if they have inculcated a biased view by people that they trust, Mm -hmm. then this is what they believe. And so how can... How can you be ethically sound? Because police officers make the most important decisions every day that can change the course of your life and death. How can you be a police officer if you can't be fair? And if you take your biases to every call that you go to, because this is what you believe, then you have no business being a police officer because there's no way that you can be fair. You well, have to be fair. I'm going to tell both you and um, Jeff this then because that, that is one of the reasons I enjoy speaking to ex-officers like yourselves because, I mean, um, uh, you have some cred in the departments and I hope that you use your creds to, to make that change because what you said, what you just said, uh, Shelby, is magic. Unfortunately, a lot more and by the way, I I do agree that most officers are not the ones that take advantage of people, but at the same time, I think they do take advantage of people with their silence. In other words, if they if they're staying behind that thin blue line, that that is an issue that I think needs to be mitigated. And guys like both of you can do that. Now, because of time, we have to segue into one other portion of this discussion with a little incident, not a little apart, a big incident that happened in the courthouse in uh, Harris County, or not the courthouse, jail in Harris, the jail in Harris County. Why don't you recount that story and tell us what, what you think is the genesis of that, Jeff? 
Oh, that's you talking about the rape of a six-year-old yes. sergeant in the twelve hundred uh, jail? No, actually, actually, uh, that one would probably take another time. We're talking about the the the, the kid that got arrested and, and I think uh, got hurt in the prison. Uh, the nineteen-year-old, yeah, nineteen-year-old Fred Harris. Yes, that's who he's talking about. Challenged, yeah, yeah. Go, yeah. Uh, he was a mentally challenged again person of color. He had a, a IQ of about sixty. He weighed about 98 pounds. He'd never had a fight in his life. And somebody, uh, again, decided to arrest him for threatening another person with a knife. And he went into jail. The mother went to the jail and talked to the uh, lieutenant or whoever was in charge at the time and explained everything to him. And they assured her he would be segregated from the population, but that was not the case. And he was murdered by a man, 240 pounds, another inmate who had a history of violence and also had a shank. And he was kicked and stomped and stabbed to death. And um, so, yeah, that that's a terrible thing. His name was Fred Harris, a 19 year old uh, youth. He looked like maybe he was 14. And, and the problem that. You know, it, it's happened before. This was, I was not surprised, unfortunately. No, is this, is, is this one of those bias issues that you talk about all the times? The arrest was definitely. Yeah, and, and I think this is a thing. If he had been uh, of, of wealth or whiteness, he would not have been in jail. Uh, apparently, the guy got, he got no closer than 12 feet to 20 feet. So how is this person threatened by a 98-pound youth with a knife? Right. So there are other I'm sure there's other stories, but the fact that we believe and we think we can solve all our problems by arresting somebody. That's you know, Chevy, that's what we they, we were taught this. When you came in contact with somebody you had to, that violated the law, you were duty bound to arrest them. All right. And if somebody didn't do what you told them to do, you put your hands on them and made them do it. And if that came once you put your hands on someone, they have to go to jail, you know. Uh, Shelby, maybe you can comment. How is HPD on that, on that situation? Well, uh, I supervised in jail for about 10 years. And that if the mother of an inmate comes and gives you information that he has some psychological issues, then at that point, you've been told uh and at that point, there are certain things that that supervisor needs to do in order to keep the young man safe. And if he has not taken those actions, then that supervisor is responsible. And if he didn't, if he didn't do what was necessary to keep the guy, guy safe and notify the supervisor of the next shift or his superior of what was going on, then that supervisor may get fired. He's going to be most responsible because he didn't take the proper action based on what the kid's mother told him. That is sad. But anyhow, we, we are getting close to the end. I think, I think I've accomplished what I've Want to hear? So let me let me ask each of you to do something that I always do. Jeff been with me before, so he knows what I'm going to say. Uh, tell me something that I should have asked you that I didn't. That gives that gives you Shelby a chance to think about it. Uh, tell me something that uh, that I should have asked you that I didn't, Jeff. Well, um, what Shelby said is, is very sobering. 
and and my experience is it's very true. But the department, when I was there, was more concerned about protecting itself than protecting those people at risk. And, and going back to what Shelby started, amazingly, with the internal affairs is exactly right. Um, it's all about protecting the department, not protecting the, the people. So that was a question you should have asked me, okay? <laughs> I, well, you know, you answered it. Shelby. I think that why why is why it's important that the public should know how the department handles itself in different parts of the city because black and Hispanic people pay the same taxes that they pay in River Oaks, Bunker Hill, and Memorial, and they should receive the same police service with the with the same with the same care and treat those people with dignity and respect. Former former officer with the Harris County and the former HPD officer, thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right. We'll keep this series going because there's a hell of a lot more we want to talk about with both you, Jeff, as well as you, Shelby. Thank you so kindly for all the work that you guys do in the community. Thank you, guys. Thank you, sir. You can get any one of my books as a gift for becoming a member of KPFT. Go to kpft.org, click that donate button, select Politics Done Right as the show you're supporting, and go into the gift area and select As I See It, Class Warfare, The Only Resort to Right-Wing Doom, or you can also get It's Worth It, How to Talk to Your Right-Wing Relatives, Friends, and Neighbors, or go to How to Make America Utopia, Take Away the Economy from Those Who Rigged It. If you get one book... It gives you one particular membership price, two books, you get a discount, and three books, you get an even better discount. So please consider becoming a member of KPFT, and in the process, you get the gifts of the books. You can get Politics Done Right Mondays through Fridays on Facebook Live at facebook.com slash politicsdoneright, on YouTube Live at politicsdoneright.com slash YouTube. Please do not forget to follow me on Twitter for updates. My handle is at Egberto Willis at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That's it, folks. My name is Egberto Willis. This is Politics and Right, and you know how I end this, baby. I am what? Out. Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people.